Food community, and you're listening to On the Menu with Dan and Peter Hay. And today we bring you interviews with two chefs that have uh, isolated, really important issues for them to tackle. And um, uh, you, you'll find a, a lot to stir up things in your head that you hadn't even thought about if you're talking to these two guys. And they are both guys. We were going to have a um, and we're going to have a female phone call. And, and she got caught on another phone call. But let's just start with a chef with with Ryan Riley um, of Life Kitchen. Also um, a, a book called Taste and Flavor. And the, the issues he's tackling um, started out having to do with a, a problem with with cancer treatment, and then evolved at the moment with the um, COVID pandemic. Um, it's interesting resources. Listen to Chef Ryan Riley. I have so many things to ask you, Ryan Riley. <laughs> You're doing so many interesting things. Um, first Thank off, you we much. should say that that you are um, you're a chef, and uh, you're currently in, um, uh, in where you are English and living in the UK, but you're currently in Brighton, right? Yep, yep. And um, we're, we're, we said we were going to talk to you about your life kitchen, and also your um, your free online book called Taste and Flavor. Uh, let, let's go back to, I mean, like, where did you train as a chef, and, and where have you been? Um, I've never, ever have trained as a chef. I'm entirely self-taught. Okay. And that's because I, when I was younger, I didn't really know much about food. I didn't really know you could be in food. I grew up as a very working-class um, northeastern English boy, and for me, food was what you got at the local cafe down the road or at a pub. <laughs> in England and I didn't really know you could be in it I didn't know there was a job to be had in it and I didn't actually start cooking until I was 23 and I'm 27 oh, now that's old yeah well uh, yeah, but ask Peter about his mother's cooking <laughs> hey, hey I, I survived childhood it was quite an achievement <laughs> it, was, it was the same thing Monday Tuesday Wednesday the only, the, only, the only change, the only change was that Tuesday this week and Tuesday next week would be different. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> yeah, but uh, she, yeah, I mean, uh, she she agreed with the Queen about no garlic as well. <laughs> oh God! Well, Weirdly, no that? garlic is, is no garlic is what we've had to base a lot of the new recipes around for taste and flavor. But we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Yeah, well, yeah, well, of course we're going to talk about that. That's what got my attention immediately. Uh, so, okay, so um, you, you've drawn to doing charitable things in a way, but really they're based in social conscience, right? Yeah, absolutely. So my, my mother was, um, was diagnosed with cancer when I was 18, and I became her primary carer for two years. And before she died, I sort of saw quite a lot of what happened to her and a lot of the stuff that we had to go through as a family. 
And that just made me really want to do something in the world that was a good thing. It took me a few years to get to that point, but once we did, and once we started Life Kitchen when I was 23, it just felt like the perfect way to give back and ensure that we could sort of have a real positive contribution to the world. And, I, you know, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think I was going to be running a non-profit, but, but here we are, and I'm, and I'm very happy now. <laughs> the, the thing is called Live Kitchen. Life, Life Kitchen. Life, Life Kitchen. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the book is called Taste and Flavor, spelled correctly with the O-U-R, by the way, um, <laughs> which, is, yeah, which is free online. And tell yeah. us what the motivation for this um, is with the COVID. Well, it was true with cancer, too, because a, a very, very well-known um, American chef had tongue cancer, and uh, he lost all sense of taste. And he had, had a, um, you know, the top restaurant in the country, and all of his, um, his cooks and sous chefs would have to do all the tasting for him while well, he went through all this, this treatment stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did a very similar thing. So we started Life Kitchen all about trying to help cancer patients enjoy food again. And we set out to that to start that four years ago. And we did all of these free cookery classes that then eventually led to our debut cookbook, which came out last year and became a number four bestseller in the UK. And that was... In that hard was copy, of, yes. Uh, in hard copy, yes. So we, that was called Life Kitchen Recipes to Revive the Joy of Taste and Flavor. And for us, that was a very big moment in our careers, but more our lives. You know, it was in, Kim lost her mother to cancer as well. So between the two of us, we, we, we'd achieved so much. But then what got really interesting is when the pandemic hit, everyone kept coming to us as the de facto people for taste loss. And, we, you know, we didn't have the answers. Everyone was like, can you please help, you know, help us to enjoy food again? which is a big ask to ask someone. And um, we, we didn't really know what, where we would fit in because COVID was so new and there was so much going on that we felt like we really had to do something. So Taste and Flavor, the, the book as it is, it's in hard copy in the UK, but as a free download worldwide. Um, Taste and Flavor was really born out of a, a genuine desire from the public to have some sort of resource on it. And it took, you know, four months to write, which is not very much, in, in the time that it is, but we, we just wanted to get something out there um, because everyone kept coming to us wanting it. Well, they've been studying why this happens with COVID. Do they fully understand why uh, one of the earliest uh, um, um, symptoms, actually, of COVID is a loss of smell, which is very important to uh, enjoying food? Yeah, it's 80% of how we experience it. So 8% of taste is smell. And yet we don't know exactly why it affects you in that way. And also we don't know how long it takes to get back for many people. But what we do know from the first study that was done by Professor Barry Smith of the University of London and charities in the UK such as Absent and Altered Eating and, and multiple universities is we know in the way that people are now being affected through either anosmia or parosmia. So anosmia is a, is a total loss of smell and parosmia is a distorted sense of smell. And one of the weirdest things that COVID is doing to people is bringing these things into their lives. So a lot of people are now parosmic because of COVID, and they're getting things like um, really repulsive flavors from garlic and onions and roasted meats and nuts and eggs. 
And to those people, it can taste repulsive, almost like sewage. Yeah, really Uh, rotten, you said. Yeah, Yeah, it's terrifying for a lot of people because for a lot of people that is, you know, we're taught the basis of cookery is garlic and onions. So most of the people are cooking at home is is really, you know, affecting them in in a way that is making them feel, you know, like they, they can't eat or enjoy food anymore. And that has so many bigger complications. Well, and but nobody knows how long it lasts, huh? Yeah, yeah. So for some people, it's been gone. For some people, they're a year into it. For some people, it, it's a few months and they've got bits and pieces of it back. Um, so when we were writing Taste and Flavor, we really had to look at how how we would kind of ensure that we didn't trigger anyone's prosmia, but by creating delicious recipes. So we've eliminated all of what are known as trigger foods, and then we ensured that those foods that we did have in the book were safe foods, or what is generally defined as safe foods, which is like pasta or, or rice or bread, which, are, you know, aren't exactly they're delicious, but they're hardly the most exciting of foods. Yeah, I'm right. So we had that. <laughs> so, I know, right? So then we had to go and use what we know about creating food in Life Kitchen to create these absolutely delicious recipes while ensuring not to trigger anything, while ensuring that they were still backed in science enough to have the possibility of working for people. Yeah, sweetheart. Yeah. Tell, 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 tell about the discussion we had with Heston Blumenthal. One time oh, yeah. You, you know Heston Blumenthal, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Anyhow, well, um, years ago when he was still at uh, the Fat Duck, we, um, we interviewed him, and, and he one of his aims was to do a... Um, a restaurant where he totally controlled all the accessory input. And, yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah, uh, and he, he did a test on us. Uh, did you want to talk about that one, Rabbit? What, what I was talking about is how, how, how smell and taste are so interlinked. So if, if you yeah. remember, if you, if you, if you, if you get, Gave, some, gave somebody a piece of apple, but you stopped them from smelling the apple, then they wouldn't know what it was. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do a very similar test in Life Kitchen. So when we're trying to, um, you know, tell people about how it affects people, we get them to put a nose clip on and bite into a piece of Parmesan. And as yeah. they're chewing it, we, we remove the nose clip, and then they get to understand the effect of smell on taste. Um, I did it on a TV show here in Britain, and people, all of the guests were like, this is incredible. It, it is, is a, such a simple, a simple test, but it shows the diversity of how important smell is to everything that we we eat. I mean, I can I can tell you that um, w- without seeing this apple, without smelling this apple, I had no idea what, that it was an apple. Yeah, no idea. I think many people are shocked by that. And the way it that we shocking. explain it in Life Kitchen is that we explain that you've got five tastes, so you've got sweet sour, salty, bitter, and umami as receptors. But what mm-hmm. you don't have is a, is a potato receptor. So people think that we, we taste in that way, but actually we don't. All we do is we taste the underlying um, parts of the flavor, but it is the smell that tells us that it's potato. And people always find that so fascinating. It is. Yeah, I know. Um, tell, tell me what goes on. Like, how did you do your research you, you must have spent a lot of time talking to medical people and scientific people. 
Well, the thing is, Professor Barry Smith has been part of Life Kitchen since the beginning. So when he did the research with all of the universities and everything, they just distilled it down for us, which meant we didn't have to do as much. So we took the initial parts of their research paper, and then when we developed the recipes, we sent out recipe boxes with the ingredients in it to people living with COVID taste loss, and we got them to try all the recipes, tell us what worked, what didn't, and we refined the recipes from those points to bring taste and flavor to life. Now, I mean, how, who goes to this? Who signs up for these classes? Um, well, it depends. So recently we've, we've obviously started to do more stuff around COVID, but in terms of Life Kitchen overall, we've, um, it tends to be people who have kind of really given up on the idea of eating or enjoying eating. And for us, it was about trying to ensure that we could unite people back around the table and getting them, you know, into the idea of cookery. I always talk about this time I met a guy called Mike Richards. Um, he's no longer alive, unfortunately. But um, when he was, he came to a class and he said to me, I, I really don't think this is going to help at all. I'm only here because my wife wants me to be. And, and, you know, she's tried everything. And we did a dish that we call pineapple tacos, which is a very famous Life Kitchen dish now. And he bit into it, and he started crying. And he was like a 72-year-old, like, northern man who was didn't want to be there. And it just showed the effect that, you know, food and taste can have, even on this seemingly hardened northern man. He was like, oh, and then he became one of our biggest supporters after that. And I think that's kind of the power of food. It's transformative. It's life-affirming. It's delicious when it's done right. And it can just lift your mood and your emotions and... And I just think that's kind of the most powerful reason that we run Life Kitchen is because food can change so many things for us. And I just wanted to ensure that everyone had that opportunity still. Now, do you actually have a day job or is this your day job? This has been my day job for four years. Since the beginning that I started it, we've been running it very, very seriously. Um, you know, we, we're a non-profit. We're not exactly rolling in cash. But what we are is, very, very lucky to have some of the biggest people in the food world as our supporters. You know, I've I've sort of created a very good reputation for for ourselves. You know, in the UK press, always call us celebrity chefs now, which is hilarious because I think of people like Heston as a celebrity chef and not little old me. And I find, and that that sort of helps us to to get by and create cool partnerships that pay the bills. But um, yeah, we 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 set out as a non-profit because we wanted life. And people like Mike or like my mother would have been to be able to come to classes when we didn't, I didn't have money when we were younger. So if, if Life Kitchen was £50 or £75 for a class, then my mother wouldn't be able to afford to come. And I just thought, well, now, do you have well. a brick and mortar presence or is it all online or is it? Um, yeah, no, no we have, we, we have a cookery school in Sunderland. It's a grade two listed Victorian, um, gate lodge that used to be on the edge of an estate and we converted that into a beautiful sort of very small eight-person cookery school and then um, we pop up around the country at places like Jamie Oliver's cookery school um, and other venues around the country and it's always beautiful nice buildings that are designed to create an experience as well. I see and so you yourselves move around your students don't move around you move around. Yeah, we move around. So we've got our permanent base in Sunderland that we open when we can. But obviously, we've been closed for a year with the pandemic. Um, but oh, before yeah. that, we, yeah, we, we travel around and we go everywhere. And I think that's just such a nice way to do it for us as well. Like, 
we, I've always found life quite exciting. And I've always found meeting people is my favorite part of my job. So I like to go to different places and, and, and put on classes for free wherever we can. Now, just walk us through how somebody would end up being in one of your classes. Did they get referred by a, a, a medical person? Or they, how do they hear about it? How do they get processed through? It's also, it's a non-profit, you said, but it's also free, right? Yep. Yeah, so basically, we there's a few different ways. We do work with the, the NHS in England, and they can put people forward to us. But our classes generally um, tend to be announced and filled on social media. So we, we, we tend to just put out that we're doing them in these places, and people sign up. And we're lucky that you know people like Nigella Lawson are huge um, supporters of ours. So they'll say lots of, uh, she'll tweet about us and say we've got classes coming up. And people find us in that way or someone's been to a class and they'll refer them. And it tends to be a sort of two to three hour experience and we always start with a glass of champagne, something nice. Um, it's a very informal environment. We're not stressful, which I like <laughs> because I just like, I like people to have a good time. I like them to forget that they have cancer and just be there with us in the moment. So this started with cancer, but you, you morphed it to COVID as well, right? Yeah, yes, simply because of demand. I never wanted to. I always thought, you know, COVID's so serious. Like, well, cancer is serious too, but COVID is so serious and so new that I didn't want to get in a way where we might not be wanted. But people wanted it, so so we decided to just go out there and try and help. And, you know, Taste and Flavor has become one of the biggest food stories in the world at the moment. And it's it's absolutely blown our minds. Well, now, what is special about this um the, the book and which book is in flavor or life kitchen um well both was special <laughs> um well i guess um, starting with life kitchen what's special about that is that we one of the first people in the world to really put down some resources for for a problem that many people just felt like was just their own individual problem what we've been very good at is highlighting that this is a bigger issue so a lot of people who come to Life Kitchen with taste loss from cancer feel that they didn't know that other people were going through that. They felt like it was just a thing for them. And what they love is that we've come out there and, and started classes that really help people enjoy food again, or, or we've backed it in science so that there are, there are parts of it that they can learn more about what's happened, slash why something tastes good. So when we released that book, a lot of people were saying how much of a resource it had been to feel less lonely in the cookery side of things. And then Taste and Flavor, you know, which based on the world's first research paper, it's the world's first cookbook for it, and it's free. So it's just all about trying to inspire and bring people back together. And that's what's been really, really prevalent for us. Now, what are the, some of the highlights out of, um, of your experience? experiences and, and what you write about in taste and flavor i mean do you have any have you developed guidelines for how to approach this issue yeah definitely so we created what we call our our life kitchen curriculum but it's basically it boils down to sort of five key principles and that would be all of it'd be texture layering citrus umami and um sort of the visuals of things so all the things that everyone normally does in food, but we've sort of distilled them into the most important. So my top tips ever for food and getting flavor in there, regardless of taste loss, but of course, um, including, 
is umami. It's the most important of our tastes, I believe. It's the thing that you get in soy sauce or parmesan or oh, mushrooms. I, as far as uh, I'm concerned, that's my primary <laughs> preference, umami. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I think so many people don't know about it. And, you know, you know, everyone knows about sweet, sour, salty and bitter as our, as our taste receptors. But umami is actually the most important because not only when you have umami rich foods, does it um, stimulate the palate, it stimulates all of the other taste receptors too. So it boosts them all. So trying to get as much umami into your diet and dishes as possible. And that doesn't mean you have to start having miso soup every day. That means added, add a tablespoon um, of miso into your chili con carne or your spaghetti bolognese create that underlying savory flavor that helps to boost any, any in every dish so I would all, honestly always say my top tip is get umami in where you can texture is incredibly important it's something that we all do anyway it's in pretty much every dish whether texture doesn't always mean crunchy it can mean soft it can mean creamy it can mean slippery it can mean so many different things, but trying to create all of those different types of texture is so important. Now, do you have any way of measuring the, uh, your success rate? You know, it's a good question. But, you know, our success rate isn't anything other than people just enjoying food again. And, you know, I've got hundreds of tweets of people saying how incredible the book has been to them. You know, you can read the Amazon reviews of the debut on. But, for us, we don't really care about anything other than people eating our recipes and, and getting something from them. And whether that's they've learned a new technique, whether they're taking one or two little tips away, or whether it's completely transformed how they see, eat, or taste, um, that's what's really important to us. And one that what I think is, you know, we never set out to do anything other than just help people. And I can proudly say that we definitely, definitely have. Now, you, well, you just moved... Did, did the move have anything to do with no, the, the things um, that we just talked about? Is yeah, in many ways it did. Yeah, Kimberly and I used to live together in London for a while, um, but we've been best friends since we were two years old. And for for us, I think what was really, really um, important is because Life Kitchen you know, has been constantly for the last four years getting bigger and expanding and blowing up, um, especially with Taste and Flavor, the global success of it. We just thought, let's get back together, let's be in the same house so we can do all of the things that we want to do. And, you know, it's it's been a very humbling journey for us both. Um, you know, like everyone, we have, you know, our doubts and worries about ourselves and we just constantly wanted to be together to support each other in, in this crazy little, um, you know, micro bubble that we've created for ourselves. You know, there was one of my questions I was going to ask what you see happening down the road, but I guess you're committed to growth. Yeah, growth, but also I want to get more into, you know, we've constantly been in education and in cookery classes helping people enjoy food again, but actually what I think is missing is everything that we've just talked about, education on umami, on how we taste, the science of taste, the science of how we you know, how smell works, all the stuff that you guys and us have just talked about together. It's very interesting to the public, but cookery shows don't focus around that. They focus around how to make a dish in 15 minutes or, you know, Italian comfort classics. I want to create, I want to start a new series on education and really teaching people how by just understanding flavor, everyone can improve their cookery and, you know, in, in, you know, alongside that improves their lives. So, I think over the next few months, we're going to be focusing on writing a TV show. 
to try and get that sort of out there. Hopefully someone will listen to us. Maybe they, maybe they won't. Um, oh, but we'll just to continue. TV. Well, we want to. I think it's just, you know, you know, we've done so many amazing things. We've, we've had so many people come to us and say, I didn't understand anything about flavour before we taught them this. And I think that's oh, an wow. issue. I think if, every, if everyone had this base knowledge of how our body works, how taste works, then everyone would be a slightly better cook by default. And, you know, maybe Life Kitchen wouldn't be needed in the future because everyone would already know what to do. <laughs> well, you, you you have a wide open field, <laughs> Ryan, so I imagine you could really expand it and, and, and way into the future. Uh, so, yeah. no, I'm, I think we should mention, by the way, that we were hoping your partner, co-writer, Kimberly Duke, um, a co-author, uh, and, and partner, as I said, uh, was, would be able to pop in and, and uh, join us. So and we seem to have missed that. But I wanted to make sure that that she got recognition, um, listeners. Oh, so, absolutely. I, yeah, I really appreciate Kimberly that, Duke. especially because everyone, you know, I, I have more of the profile in, in the world than Kimberly does. But um, I wanted to always make sure that she gets the credit because without her, taste and flavor wouldn't have even existed. The whole concept was Kim's idea. Um, and she's actually just messaged me to say that she can't call because of her, her mobile phone contract doesn't allow her to do it outside of Britain. So she has, we, she might not have been able to join us here, but I'm very grateful that to have her. And there's going to be a lot of exciting things coming from both of us in the future. Well, I'm very excited with what you're doing. And uh, um, it couldn't be timelier, but as, as you indicated, you see the long, long-term possibilities of, of pursuing it from an educational point of view, and I applaud you. Uh, again, listeners, it's, um, uh, it's Ryan Riley and Kimberly Duke. Um, it's the Life Kitchen, and also uh, you can download uh, Taste and Flavor or buy a copy, uh, a cookbook or a cookery book, I guess we call it, uh, now, how about giving us a website just to sort of round up this so anybody wants to get any more information? Absolutely. So you can download Taste and Flavor at lifekitchen.co.uk. Um, we're on all social platforms, at Life Kitchen on Twitter and at Life Kitchen Cookery on Instagram. And if anyone wants to get our original debut book, you can get it on Amazon. And we're just really, really proud to be able to be out there doing something. And we're here for any questions. So if any of your listeners want to find us, find us on those social medias. But, um, yeah, thank you so, so much for having us. And, um, well, continued really, really success, Ryan. And I'm, I'm really excited for what you're doing. And, uh, and, and as I said, continued success. Now, thank now you so, the, so much. Here's the ultimate question. Do you, do you support Sunderland or do you support Newcastle United? <laughs> well, technically, technically by family association, I have to support Sunderland. So I'll leave it at that and let everyone fight it out amongst themselves. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for being part of the Thank you, Ryan. I look forward to no being able to come and visit our relatives in the, in the near future. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you do, make sure you drop me a message and um, I'd love to meet up and maybe I can show you some of our wonderful food. And that'll be great. Thank you, Ryan, and and thank uh, Kimberly. For, I will. For her I will. Thank you very much. 
Thank will, you, dear. Will you send me Will you send me a link um, when it's up so I can listen? Oh to yes, it? yes. We we'll, we have your email address, and we will email you when it's to air, and you can listen to it uh, on our website or on any of your podcast servers. I look forward to it. Thank you so, so much again. Speak soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. And next up, um, you're going to enjoy this. You talk about being the real deal. That's what uh, Matthew Rayford is as a chef who reveals his roots uh, as a seventh-generation farmer, as well as the uh, all his research on, including among his own family, um, uh, of the sources for much of the food we associate with the South. Um, well, he talk, talks all about it, just listening for this. Yeah, there's, some, there's, some his, there's some history, too, of a period in American history of which we shouldn't be all that proud. But, some, but somehow or other Matthew made it through, and uh, he's just a fascinating storyteller. Well, talk about somebody really surrounded by, embedded in, and the product of a, a long history. Uh, Matthew Rayford, I mean, it, I was just totally, totally engrossed in, in your book, Breast and Yam. Uh, which means, by the way, bless and eat. Bless and eat. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you had quite a life, and <laughs> but I, most people don't have access to the kind of history that you you have all around you. Tell us what that mm-hmm. feels like. You know, it's um. It, at first, it kind of weighed heavy on me to, like, know all of this and try to figure out, you know, how to walk around with it. But I think, you know, my my family, my mom, my grandmother, my aunt, everyone is kind of in my, that have been in my life uh, have always told me that um, the easiest way to overcome something is to walk through it. And oh. so... I have been basically walking through this land uh, just about I, – I walk all of this property about three, four times a week. So really? I think that a lot has to do with that, that I'm I'm here, I'm in this place, and I'm just loving every bit of it. Well, now tell us about – you, you, you had kind of a peripatetic um, raising up, haven't you? I mean, you you lived in the north, you lived in the south, uh, mm-hmm. you've worked on the west coast, you've traveled the world. Tell us, just give our listeners uh, sort of an elevator speech on, on what you've done. Yeah, well, you know, born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, raised in Brunswick, Georgia, spent my summers in um, Opelika, Miami, Florida, um, to Bridgeport, Connecticut with my grandparents, uh, joined the military when I was 18, uh, lived everywhere from Germany, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, um, Korea. <laughs> and then I uh, finished up, you know, my last few jobs have been everywhere from an apprenticeship at MGM Grand in Las Vegas to opening chef team of the Gaylord National Hotel in Washington, D.C., 
to being the executive chef for Hope Catering Company at the House of Representatives to working <laughs> on private islands that are only accessible by boat I've, and, and even owning my own restaurants in the process. So I've had a very well-rounded uh, life, so to speak. And surrounded by people that were really very inspirational, right? Definitely, definitely. I, you know, it's kind of interesting because my dad says that if he knew then what he knows now about where I was with food, he would have pushed me to go to culinary school instead of telling me, you know, there's a lot of things you can be some co- a cook ain't one of them. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's been it's been a, a very interesting journey where I have um, been able to coalesce a lot of uh, good people around me um, outside of family and have been able to, like, kind of, you know, take those experiences and turn them into food. But, but, but Matthew, there's... At the center of this whole thing, it seemed to me, there's a piece of land, mm-hmm. which not not all African American families ever had. Right. Somehow mm-hmm. you did. How how did that come about? So Jupiter Gilliard was born a slave in 1812, and um, in 1874 he paid nine dollars in taxes. On 476 acres of land, um, he was. Well, that's quite uh, a bomb, right? Yeah, that's that's quite a, that's quite a deal. Nine dollars in taxes, but um, you also have to think about the time period that it was in. Also, like on the coast of Georgia at that point in time, Sherman had already made his march. Um, there was uh, what would be considered a white flight at that time. The numbers were astounding. Yeah, they the were amount. afraid of an uprising. Yeah. Right, right. The amount. Of of people of African descent that were in this area. And so that's like the beginning part of us getting the land. But then we have Union School on the land that was built in 1907. Yeah, you lived there for a while, right? Yeah. From 1907 to 1905, it was the only school for uh, black folks to go to um, within about a 20-mile radius of here. You know, you don't realize it, but you're kind of a blessing to me. Is um, I I clipped and saved an, an article, and I kept trying to track down. Um, apparently, there there was all this land held, um, black held farmland, all over the mm-hmm. place, and it was wrested away from them by all kinds of uh, criminal kinds of cheap things. And mm-hmm. there's a group, a group of, to try to restore farmland to black farmers. And I have mm-hmm. never found a contact for any of that. So I get to talk to you, who's a sixth-generation farmer chef, which is great. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah, there, there, are, um, there are a few organizations that are out there. I know SAFON, which is the Southeastern African American Farmers Organic Network, they have a huge uh, – they have over 100-plus farmers that are in their network. Um, they have a lot of connection with uh, organizations that deal with land and racial equity. Um, so and we, we've interviewed Jessica Harris, by the way. Yes. Auntie yeah. Jessica. Mm-hmm. Pardon? I said I call her Auntie Jessica. She has been uh, – 
She has been one of the people that I have talked to for over 20 years about food and food ways. Uh, well, it was a so, wine yeah. guy who recommended her because he's worked with her. But I noticed all of your blurbs on the back of your book. We've interviewed all those people. They're, uh, they're really important people. Yeah, Jessica and Virginia Willis many times, uh, Ronnie mm-hmm. Lundy, um, uh, Todd Richards. We've done all of that. So, awesome. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So. I've, I've been able to meet a lot of amazing people and create friendships with lots of amazing people. Um, I'm I'm one of those people that, you know, I don't mind rolling up my sleeves and just working with folks. I have no ego in it at all. Um for me, it's all about the the connection to the land and connection to food and connection to people and getting people to understand that a seat at the table means that everyone eats. Yeah, that's great. You, I love that description of where were you were someplace in a meeting and you looked up and this was not a common occurrence until – this started, and you saw these people in, in the room that looked like you, and then you started sorting through, and there was Edna Lewis, and there were all these people. That must have been an awesome experience. Yes, yes, yeah. It's um, it, I, I mean, I I just I feel so honored and blessed to be at this point in life right now. You know. Well, yeah. It uh, sounds like you have a great time going there. Um, now um, the. The um, it, tell us uh, just for our listeners. Tell us, d- define for us Gula and Geechee. Yeah, G- Gullah Geechee is the are, are the exact same people. It's just kind of like where you are. Um, you know, Carolina. I mean, the it runs from North Carolina to uh, Northern Florida, um, uh-huh. all along the coastal area. Um, I'm what a lot of people call a freshwater Geechee because I live. I don't live on any of the barrier islands. I was basically raised uh, on the on the mainland, so to speak. But from yeah, my I, farm, I didn't know there was that distinction, and I was interested in reading it. There are so many things in this book, by the way, that, are, that tell me things that I thought I would know, and then I didn't, um, including um, what was the one I was thinking of that. Um, Oh, I mean, these things that came from uh, from uh, Gula, from words and the language and stuff. But right, like go ahead. No, I was saying like the word juke or juke joint um, to dance, to 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 be out, um, to to uh, to entertain. Um, it was one about that, food that got me because I goober goober. goober. I didn't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I never well, thought I mean, of that. Well, it, it's a whole candy. I mean, it's a goober candy. Like when I was a kid, you went and you got goobers, and those uh-huh. were the chocolate and peanut covered candies. So, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, there's. But that. we used um, it interchangeably for peanuts, goobers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. tell us, tell our listeners about how you organized this book because. You do things your own way, and this is not a typical way of organizing a cookbook, but tell us. Yeah, so my initial thought when I was, you know, first talking about writing the cookbook and sat down with the writer Amy Amy Condon, who was just amazing, I Mm -hmm. said, you know, I want to write a cookbook 
where I talk about where the product or where the item ingredients come from. And she looked at me and she said, like, like, what, what, like, from a field or something? And I said, no. I said, I want to use the elements. So my <laughs> book is based on ocean, earth, wind, fire, spirit, and then I added in nectar. Um, so what I wanted to do was talk about, like, where food actually comes from and, like, water, like what comes out of the water that we eat um, and that is delicious, um, what comes out of the earth, you know, what do we grow? Um, I wanted to talk about wind, right? So wind is anything that has wings, right? So that, but let's, let's surpass just chicken wings, right? Let's talk about dark wing duck and like a, a, a an amazing duck wing that is like cooked to perfection, slow roasted. Yeah, so... I really wanted to do that, and and I'm I am looking for as I develop this sec the my second cookbook that we expound on each one of the elements uh, as as we as we start to push forward. Well, I mean, as I said, there's so much information here, uh, and these great recipes. Um, it, it's funny reading it. I mean, it seems to me that. We're really back where we started, <laughs> like using the whole yeah. hog. And, you know. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, this past year, I mean, I, I didn't know that COVID-19 was going to happen at all, for sure. But this well, past yeah. year has pushed people to realize that they need to pay attention to their food system and where they're getting things from and, and, and how much of it is actually available. I mean, who would have thunk that we would have run out of, of towels and paper towels and toilet paper, um, you know, and eggs. Like, who would who would have thought that those would be the first three things that go? Just to mention flour, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so now we're at the point of uh, trying to figure it out. And, my, and that is where my book is. You know, it's, it's a sense of place. Where are you? Where did your food come from? What does it taste like? What are the old ways that we are – now calling artisan ways that exactly. are still being held by so many uh, groups of people. And there are so many people I know that have been doing whole hog for 50 years that, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a part of the way we eat, you know. Um, I think about uh, Gary Lee's, which is probably 10 minutes from my farm. I mean, they have been making sausages and smoking hogs and doing smoked meat since the, like, 60s. So, you know, they're, they're, these iconic places are are still here. People are still cooking. You know, we, we the only thing that we've done is we've added technology more to our cooking, right? So now we have induction cooking right now, right, where, where you can uh, – where it's uh, completely magnetic-driven. Uh, we have sous vide where we can put things in bags and things like that, but we're still ultimately cooking with we're still yeah. cooking with heat, a heat source, right? We're, unless we're eating things raw, of course. But and so <laughs> some people do I, that, you know? <laughs> right? They do, they do, right? Um, but I just, I just want, yeah, I wanted to make sure the book. Um, gave that sense that that there that what's what's new is old and what's old is new. That it's right. all the same. Yeah. Right now there are there are people who 
were working on reviving the old foods, like the guy who owns Anson Mills. Mm-hmm. Glenn Roberts. I mean, he's, he's, yeah. he's bringing back Carolina red rice and all, all kinds of other ingredients that were Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of history. I grow Sea Island red peas here at the farm. I grow hibiscus here at the farm. I grow uh, Sea Island white peas here at the farm. Yeah, some of these things, I was surprised that you grew. You have that story about walking through the property with your grandmother and talking about all these things she planted, most of which died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but then you turn up, you're planting things like um, uh, 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 turmeric. I mean, turmeric. why? I mean, I never thought of turmeric and having anything to do with um, Georgia or the South at all. Right. You know, so that was the other thing that I also wanted to kind of talk about, right, was that there are lots of things, like like we grow, like mullen grows wild here. Yeah. You know? Well, you um, know, that, that until our kids moved to South Carolina, I, I knew nothing about that uh, that funny grape. What is this called? Oh, yeah, the muscatine. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so there's... There, there are lots of things that grow here that that have been growing wild for, you know, centuries now. And so that is one of the other things. Like, like I literally in September and October, in October, I harvest wild staghorn sumac right here off of the farm. Yeah, I mean, how do you tell if, it, if the sumac is not the poisonous kind? It looks like oh, well, it. I'm, yeah, so the, the poisonous kind also is very... Uh, itchy and sticky and so the staghorn sumac that grows here is not that you know like we have poison ivy out here which is part of that sumac family but um ours are the ones that that are more tree-like not vine-like mm-hmm. yeah well um a lot of these recipes what are these funny red things by the way that you have um in, in the back cover inside the back cover you have the hot peppers on the left and then you have these funny red spiny looking things hibiscus that's hibiscus oh gosh i never thought about that yeah and from that we actually have um partnered with simple man distillery and we actually have a gullah geechee hibiscus gin that we've had for over a year. Um, if you go online to www.simplemandistillery, you can see our gin where we grow most of the botanicals that go inside of that gin, except for the juniper berries. Huh. Well, I, I'm, I'm looking at your recipe for mesa greens because I ordered my farm stand uh, online thing for, for next week. I'm, I'm, I'm getting collards. But I always right. thought, yeah. But I always thought the secret to them was throwing in a ham hock. But you didn't call for that. No, uh, uh-uh. uh. So, so here's one of the interesting things, right? So it's not the ham hock per se; it's the smokiness of the ham hock is what folks are really looking for, unless they're looking for meat. So mm-hmm. you could use something like a smoked paprika. You could even that's use what you have here, a smoked paprika, your hot and sweet paprika. seasoning. Yes. And so I like using that, because, and along with the apple cider vinegar, 
And it just it gives it that exact same thing. So when people come eat my greens, I don't have to worry about whether they're uh, no pork, no meat, vegetarian, vegan. It's already all of that. So I want you to I want you to eat a mess of greens. Yeah, I love it. That tell us about your watermelon steak salad with heirloom tomatoes and sangria uh, vinaigrette. That looks fabulous. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> that actually came from, you know, I was my running joke was, have anyone had grilled pineapple before? And they were like, yeah. I was like, it's amazing what grilling um, certain fruits actually tastes like. And I was like, you know, you ought to grill watermelon and check it out. And somebody was like, yeah. grilled watermelon? No, I would have never. I was like, <laughs> thank you for you. So, and basically, you know, I took some old sangria, which is basically wine and fruit that's been put together, let it sit for 30 or 40 days or whatever, and then strain it, and you got this additional wine with a little bit of extra, you know, fruitiness to it. So I started doing that because, you know, for me, it's like, what is a salad? What does a salad consist of? Well, oftentimes we just think it's just tomatoes and cucumbers and things like that, and I wanted to show that. You can. There, there are other ways to consume uh, vegetables and fruit. Mm-hmm. Well, there are certainly. Um, and of course, my grandmother used to use the watermelon rind for pickles. Um, yeah. I, I loved your comment that I, I never. It never occurred to me that it's almost impossible to get watermelon with seeds in it anymore. Here, right. Yeah. Here, because people, are, I mean, people are growing watermelons now so that it can just like you know fit in a refrigerator. And I remember that back in the day, like you grew big watermelons because you fed a lot of people. You know, you didn't, yeah. it wasn't like oh one or two people. So yeah, I mean, I love the Georgia rattlesnake watermelon. It's one of my favorite. Um, I think my next favorite would be the Bradford watermelon, which is super sweet, also. Um, and then this year I'm trying to grow a yellow meat watermelon. Oh, I've seen those. They, they don't seem right to me. <laughs> I know, right? But, I mean, these are like, and this is a... Well, listen, we had, somebody pocket. sent us pink pineapples. That didn't seem right either. Right, right. <laughs> well, you know, nature knows what it wants to do. That's for sure. Yeah. So what did you start to say, Robin? I wanted to ask... In a way, a really cheeky question, but but I guess the the condition of the American farm and the American farmer is something a lot of people are worried about. So, can you make can you make a living at this on this property that you have? Yes, sir, you can. You know, a lot of it is understanding and not trying to create and do everything. So, there are things that I don't try to grow at my farm, nor do I even want to grow at my farm. Um, and so I think that a lot of it is understanding that farming is a business. It's not um, It's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. Um, and you have to be okay with Mother Nature being for real. You know, Mother Nature and Mother Earth, they, they control what actually happens, no matter what we try to do. Um, and I will give you the, the craziest scenario ever. Her, during Hurricane Matthew, I, lo- I lost 125 chickens, ducks, and guinea hens. You're kidding. It, wow. Less than, Was it I, I don't know. I, what, they, what happened? No, no, no. no. The, 
the hurricane hurricane swept them away yeah it, it destroyed the chicken coop it destroyed the fencing around it there, there was nothing like like literally there weren't feathers there weren't anything and we did have a windstorm. And no feathers? You, you didn't even no. find a feather? No. And one of the How things bizarre. that happened was windstorm actually physically comes through the farm. So I, I have no control over a windstorm. You don't have control over a windstorm. And when it happens, I mean, 125 chickens alone is 70 dozen eggs a week. You multiply that by... Four or five dollars. You're talking about three hundred and fifty dollars a week. You're talking about thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars a month. All that was gone in one day. Jeez. That's like we interviewed so those- somebody from Texas. So what did what did he get wiped out of, Rabbit? Grapefruit. Grapefruit. Yes. Yeah. He lost. He I mean, lost two years. Gone, two, two years of grapefruit. Yeah. I mean, there was the stuff on the tree that got and- killed. And mm-hmm. the buds got killed, so that's two growing seasons lost. Yep. And, that, and you know, it's only can... going to get worse with climate change. Right. And so, and so that is also one of those conversations about how, how much more, and, and that is why, you know, my first book is definitely about a sense of place, and I am so looking forward to talking about understanding how we we have the damage that we've done. We've we've done it all in like fifty, sixty years. <laughs> all that damage done, you know, and we've done it. Let's put it this way: we've done it in less than a hundred years. And so, if we are going to make the changes and with technology, we can help the planet instead of consistently destroying it. Like I, I make all of my own compost. Yeah. And My mother I used, used to do that, too. I used the horse manure from the stable up the road. I used cow patties. I used wood chips. Yeah. So whenever cleaning the, the roads I or whatever. I was telling I Peter about our friend who um, started gardening, and they built up a compost heap in the back of their yard. And every mm-hmm. so often, her husband would go out and pee on it. <laughs> <laughs> Start, right? This is this in the middle of the city, mind you? This is not on a farm. Right, right. Yeah, I, right now I have the ability to create five acres worth of compost on my farm. Uh-huh. And, wow. And I'm also creating about enough compost to go on maybe about an acre right now, but I have, I have the ability to do that. So a lot of it is like, you know – one of the things my nana would say sometimes is, "Baby, you know God ain't making no more land," and that's true. <laughs> it's the earth is what it is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. she must have been have a character. She's wonderful advice in this book. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, my always had some. I mean, I could go to my nana with anything, and she would be like, "Hold on a second. and she and she was smart as a whip to the day she passed, you know, and mm-hmm. I, w- I will say that I have garnered a lot of knowledge from her, but, well, and, and I think that part of it was is that she was also an observer of nature, mm-hmm. so she, she literally, I mean, she would sit, she would sit on the porch, you know, and, and I would come up and she said, baby, did you hear them birds? And I'd be like, yes, ma'am, I did. 
Like she was, she was taking in, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and, and, you know, on a lot of occasions we've lost appreciation for things like that, but I know. as I know. a fight, we have over 40 something species of birds that are flying on this property all over this property right now. Yeah. Well, well, no, so, rabbit. Did you see, by the way, um, uh, Matthew rabbit, I'm um, Peter. My husband, Peter is um, mm-hmm. an expert um, whole pig roaster. And I wonder if he had, have you seen the, the instructions on a pig roast, how to do a pig roast rabbit? No, I, no, I yeah. didn't see that. We might be doing this yeah. in our backyard. Doing <laughs> it's it. probably safer than, than the uh, goose you roasted. Here you go. A big I old did, metal mattress. A big go old ahead. what? Metal mattress frame. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I wrote well, you know, the, the, on. We used to do these, these pig roasts. And the funny thing was, um, we used to do them in, in the countryside, like in Brown County, Indiana, and stuff. And all these city people would come, but once they um, they actually got to the pigs to deal with it, I mean, you saw these refined or pseudo refined uh, city folk cracking the skull open to get to the brains of the pig. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ain't nothing like a pig. They needed some brains. They didn't have enough. <laughs> well, I mean, this, there's so much in this book, we're never going to cover it all. And, and I think, listeners, that the, the ideal thing for you to do is actually just read through it and you get the whole sense of, of what his values are and his life is like. And then you could also find actual recipes and things that, um, that you can do. And, and I have picked out several that I'm going to make. Um, but your Nana also had something to say about um, recipes, right? Oh yeah, that that a, a you know a recipe is a guide. It's not the rule. You you know you got to put a you got to taste it and taste it and you know and then, you know it might be the weather outside that changes the recipe. So she's she was always uh, on me about uh, not thinking that you know once the recipe was done that it was just done. Because she was like, you can always stay and taste some more and be like, oh, I think I should put a little more pinch of this and a little more pinch of that. So, yeah. yeah. Well, well I, I must say that I'm intrigued by your fried chicken, but there's no way I'm going to spend two days frying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's one of those things that, like, I hadn't fried chicken for, I don't know, decades. I don't ever remember really just, like, because we weren't eating chicken all the time. Mm-hmm. And when we did, it was usually an old hen. Right. So, you know, chicken gets every well, isn't day. That, isn't, that, isn't that the story? What, what happens, what, what, what becomes of a chicken once it stops laying eggs? And the answer is Sunday dinner. There you go. <laughs> well, once again, um, this is Matthew Rayford, uh, and it's breath and yam. And it's, yes. it's a wonderful book. I didn't mention photography, but it's it's really special as well. And so it, it was a fun read, and you sound like you're having a good life, and that's wonderful. Matthew, you're an inspiration. You're, you're an Thank inspiration you. to for America to realize that people like you are still out there. Yes, sir. <laughs> 
considering what we've been through this past year and a half, we, right? We won't. We we won't right. have to go Four there. years. I was thinking about going there, and then I thought, no, we, we no, really don't want we, to no, do that. We, no. We, we, want, we want to understand a man and his land, and that's <laughs> what we've been talking about. So, Malcolm, well, we can always come so much. around. Let me we know when. You we can watch. always come back to that conversation. You just let me know when. Okay. okay. Let us know about your book. When does the new book come out? I most certainly will. Okay. All right, thank you. Glad we caught up, Matthew. Ciao, ciao. Thank you all for your time. You all have a great day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. I can picture what fun it would be to sit by the campfire and and talk with Matthew about his life story and even what he's going to do next, which I'm sure will be another fascinating surprise. Exactly. So, So don't be a bit surprised if... Both of these characters that we've talked to today, Ryan on the one hand and Matthew on the other, come come into your. What's the right word? They say once again we find out over and over and over again how central food is to our everyday lives and our society. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if one or both of these guys show up on the third third hour of today. Just any time soon. And in in the meantime, we'll just enjoy the fact that we had a fascinating conversation with them. And we hope that you'll share it by following up on the further details about their various adventures. Right? Yes, indeed. So what do we say until this time, same time, same place next week? Bye-bye.